0: Father, I just pray you'd be with me. Uh, I'm a simple man, and I'm not, and I'm broken, and I'm not the brightest tool in the shed, as it were, but, but we're gonna look into your word, and we trust your word. We trust your word more than my words. We trust your word more than what I say. So just be in this conversation we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been tracking, we're in a series called The Cross. So for three weeks, we're looking at the heart of the cross, and, and that's what we're gonna be talking about today. Now, as we talk about the cross, I was kind of thinking about this. There's a couple things I want to get out of the way before I get into my part. What we're looking at today is what happened at the cross. Now, I know that if we do a zoom in or a close up of the cross, we talked about it this weekend with the high schoolers. We have things like a crown of thorns. We have a scourging. We have a crucifixion. We have a robe. We have all these things. What I want us to do is kind of pull back, as it were, to a 30,000 foot view. Can you guys do that with me? And so really answer the question, at the heart of the cross, what was transpiring? Now, now before we do that, there's some words that we need to use. And, and has anyone here ever played the game taboo? You know the game. And so one person's up there and you're trying to get them to guess a word. It's on a card. But underneath that word are a bunch of words you're not allowed to say. And so I think what's happened in American culture, I'm certain of it, is that as we talk about the gospel, as we talk about Jesus, there's some words that have been kind of, we've considered them taboo. And so you think about words like hell. We don't use it a lot. You think about words like the wrath of God. When's the last time we talked about the wrath of God? You think about damnation, you think about punishment, you think about sin, and so there's these words that tend to be taboo. And one of the words we're going to focus on today is the word wrath. Now, I'm not real good at numbers; I'm more of a word guy. So I posted some some numbers. I looked up, did some research. The word love. I want you to think for a minute. How many times do you think it occurs in the Bible? The word love in all its various forms okay? The Old Testament, it occurs 319 times, okay? So you got kind of a, a guideline, a number. New Testament, 232. Anybody guess that? You can probably Google it right now on phones faster than I can read it, but anyways. Uh, but they don't want you to think about the word wrath. How often do you think the word wrath occurs in, in God's word? The Old Testament, 455 times. New Testament, now some of you think, well, the Old Testament, you know, that's the stories with wrath, and that's kind of where God displayed it. The New Testament, 375 times. So I have to ask the question, in our Christian culture, should we be using the word wrath? It's okay, okay? Now, if you want to text Pastor Gary and say, we'll use the word wrath on the stage, go for it, because I got some numbers here, hopefully to back me up. The other thing I want to talk about is duality. Now, if you're kind of a theologian or if you study that kind of stuff, you may have heard me say the word dualism. And I didn't say that. I said the word duality. Let me explain. Dualism is a belief that says there's two equal but opposite powers in the universe. Many non-Christians kind of look at the Bible like this. They say there's good, there's evil, there's God, there's Satan. They're equal and they fight each other. Now, as Christians, is that true? Absolutely not. So duality is not dualism. What duality says is two things that appear to contradict each other can both be equally true. And if we read our Bible, we realize there's things in the Bible that seem to be opposite. Now, philosophy would tell us if two truths seem to oppose each other, one of them must be false. But when we come to God's word, if we read two things that appear to oppose each other, the the conclusion is what? They're both true. And it's probably our understanding of them that's not up to par. Now, this is hard as humans. We are not dual beings. So, for example, when I'm angry, I'm not loving someone. In my marriage, when I'm angry with my wife, that's a place where that can occur. I confess it. I'm not feeling loving, and she would agree to that if she was here. When I'm happy, I'm not feeling sad. In fact, many of us, we look at this idea of duality as humans with our limitations and say, that's called two-faced. It reminds me, a friend of mine named Chip, he's a pastor in Idaho. And so Chip, uh, he, he had a church plant and he needed some extra income. And so what happened, this is a crazy story, uh, in, the, in the Boise Zoo in Idaho, the gorilla died. And so the zookeepers didn't know what to do because this gorilla was like just one of the main attractions in Idaho. We don't have a lot to do there, so a gorilla that does stuff is really cool. And so this gorilla, it could, it could swing around and it, could, it had like a trapeze and it would kind of do all this stuff. And so the zoo was like, what are we going to do? We're going to lose money. And so they got this really good idea. They skinned the gorilla and they put an ad in the paper that simply said, looking for a good impersonator apply at the Boise Zoo. So my friend Chip looks at it, looks at the wage, and says, I don't know what they're asking for, but, and and it was kind of top secret. So he gets in there and they kind of audition him and finally realize he's good for the role. And and imagine his surprise when they said, we want you to dress up like a gorilla and keep the gorilla trick going. So Chip gets out there the first day and you can imagine you're wearing this gorilla skin and you know, he's kind of lumbering around like a gorilla might. And, And he's realizing there's an audience. And like any pastor, you know, you got an audience that's laughing, you just kind of ham it up more. And so he's kind of hamming it up, and then he begins to kind of jump around. The audience is going for it. And so day two comes, and he's like, he's you know, now he's kind of like, this, this is the best job on earth. I get to impersonate a gorilla, and people applaud me. And so day two, he grabs that trapeze bar, and he goes, I'm going for it. So he starts kind of swinging back and forth. And, of course, the audience is like, woohoo! hoo that's great. We love this gorilla. And so he's really hamming it up. Now, what he didn't realize is next to him is the lion's den. You see where it's going, right? And so he starts kind of doing this back and forth and thinks, you know, I think if I do it right, like on a swing set, I can let go and kind of land it and, you know, ta-da. And everyone would be like, wow, that gorilla is brilliant. So he tries it. He misses and lands in the lion's den. And he's down in, you know, that kind of moat thing right in front of the lion's den. And so he's kind of looking around. Imagine you're in a gorilla suit, so you can't cry for help. And he's like, what do I do? And all of a sudden, sure enough, that lion starts coming down the moat. And he's like, this is not good. So he kind of runs over to the wall. And at this point, we're losing the gorilla impersonation and starts pounding on the wall. And he's screaming, help, help. <laughs> now, fortunately for the onlookers, they can't understand what he's saying. They just hear this terrified, high-pitched screaming. And they're like, man, this g-. now you can imagine the audience. They're like, this is great. And so he's pounding on the wall. And this, this, this lion is coming closer and closer. And he can feel just kind of, you know, the stomping of the feet, and as it's coming towards him, and he doesn't know what to do, and he kind of turns his back towards, like, you know, what are you going to do, Face the lion? That doesn't help a lot. And so this lion's coming, and finally it gets close enough, and he can feel its breath, and he's, now he's terrified. He's not screaming. And so finally he says, I, I got to call out for help. Help! Help! And as he's yelling help, the lion's mouth opens. And this sound comes out, and he listens, ready for the growl of death. And this voice says, shut up, you're going to get us both fired. (laughs) And so we see, you can imagine the audience at this point says, this is a totally bogus zoo. And so we as humans have a problem with duality. We call it two-faced, we call it fake. Probably the people at the zoo wanted their money back. The problem is when we come to the God of the universe, there are things about him that in our human limitations appear to oppose each other. I had a kid last week at youth group ask me this question, you've probably heard it, came up and said, Will, I have a question for you. Did God choose us? You know the rest of the question, right? Or did we choose him? And I don't know what her goal was. I don't know if she wanted truth or wanted to kind of pin me in a corner. And some of you are like, okay, I'm waiting for Will to give the answer. Because depending on the answer he gives, I will either listen or not listen to the rest of the sermon. Now, in philosophy, when two things seem to oppose each other, one of the ways we help absolve the tension is with an either or question. So if you're hosting a birthday party with 100 kids and you have chocolate and vanilla ice cream, what do you ask the kids? would you like chocolate or vanilla? You limit their choice. And of course, the smart aleck kid in the group says, yes. And you give them both. And so I looked at this girl saying, did God choose us or did we choose him? And my answer was, yes, absolutely. Because as I read God's word, I see verses that clearly say God chooses us. And I see verses that clearly say we choose God. So when it comes to duality, we're forced to say there's truths about God that appear to contradict. So two of those I want us to explore today are the wrath of God and the love of God. And again, we think about the fact that wrath can be a taboo word in our culture. We tend, as we evangelize, as we share the gospel, to talk an awful lot about the love of God. And don't get me wrong, the love of God is overwhelming. The love of God is compelling, as Steve said. But if we look at our numbers, if we look in our Bibles, we see the wrath of God is equally, if not more, presented. We also see the justice of God and the mercy of God. And the question has to be asked, how can a just God be equally merciful? And so I want us to think about this. One of my favorite verses, and we're going to talk about it as we do communion later, is in 2 Samuel 14.14. 14. And what the verse says, it says, all of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Sounds bleak, doesn't it? And so what the author is saying is we are doomed. That, that water I spilled out, it's going to evaporate. It's going to soak into the stage. Kevin's probably going to kill me. It's all right. It's, it's, it, he gave me permission. But that water can never be gathered back again in its purest form. It'll be polluted. It'll be diluted. And so our lives are like that because of sin. Scripture says it elsewhere. We look at Romans 3, 9 through 12. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, ready for this? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All, what's the key word there? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, as we read that, it's easy to read and say, well, it's kind of talking about the unsaved. It's kind of talking about the lost. Well, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul clarifies what he means. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Good news, right? Paul goes on, and I am, not I was, I am the worst of them all. And so, if we're honest with ourselves, I am the worst sinner that I know. I look at Joey, and and I know Joey's a sinner because he's a straight shooter, an honest man. I don't know his sin. So as I look in a room like this, I don't care what I see on TV or who I meet, I am the worst sinner that I know. And so we have to accept, we have to present to the world that there is a thing called sin, and in it we are doomed. Our lives are like water spilled out. It cannot be gathered up again. Now the question becomes, what is God's response to our sin? God sees sin in the world. What is his response? Well, I want to take us to a psalm. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Psalm 5. Now, I want to warn you up front, this is not a coffee cup psalm. There's some psalms that get printed on coffee cups. There's some psalms that get printed on wall hangings. There's some psalms that little sweet old ladies will crochet for you and give you to your wedding. This is not one of them. I'll make a wager, $100, if you can bring me a crocheted version of this psalm. So here we go. Psalm 5, 4 through 6, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, what's the word? Hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, some of us read that, and it's easy to say, well, maybe it's out of context. Maybe this is David's opinion. If you flip over to Psalm 11, 5 through 6, you see a similar rhetoric. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then we see what that holy hatred expresses itself in. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion Of their cup. This holy hatred expresses itself in wrath. If you remember last week, Pastor Gary talked about the cup being a picture in the Bible of God's wrath poured out against sinful humanity. And so we see this reality, it's bleak. If you're here for the first time, you're going, "Wait a minute, this is this is not what I've heard." I have non-Christian friends and here's the message as I talk to them. This is what they know about God based on what we've told them. God loves you and you're all God's children. And then maybe with that they've heard that God's love is completely unconditional. Now, my non-Christian friends are not stupid. And so they put these three truths together and say, well, if God loves me, and if his love is unconditional, and we're all his children, I'm going to end up in heaven. Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. He uses the same logic and says, if God is love, and love gets what it wants, and we're all his children, then ultimately we all end up in heaven. And so there's really no fear of hell. The problem, and I'm not going to preach on it, but I'd ask you to research it, are we all on this earth God's children? Scripture says, We're children of wrath, we become children of God. Now, I didn't finish the Psalm, thank God. Okay, so let's finish part two, Psalm five seven. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, I will bow down toward your holy temple. Who wrote this? It's David. Did David write and say, because I'm such a godly man, because I'm such a holy man, I can enter your presence? Was David sinless? I don't want to beat on David, but he wasn't sinless. Sometimes when we talk about David, we say, well, you know, that one time David and Bathsheba, and he had adultery, and one man died? That's a pretty big deal. Look near the end of his life when he takes a census how many people died. If you read it, one man's not really a big deal, but David understands something and says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And so in this one psalm, we see what? The wrath of God and the love of God. And somehow David's able to bring them together. Now, how is that? First answer would be, he's writing by the Holy Spirit. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's able to know what's coming, and that's true, but at the same time, there's something in David's life that points to this duality, to this two truths being equal simultaneously. There's a festival that David has celebrated every year of his life. Anybody know what it is? It's Passover. And so I want—I'm going to read to you guys. If you want to turn to Exodus 12, I'm going to read a portion, not the entirety. Of the Passover story. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, shall you make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be, listen to this, without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. Jump down to verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I shall strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We have a picture here. What is it? It's Jesus. The wrath of God meets the love of God. Now, if we watch cartoons and we're not careful, it's it's likely some people would say, well, the people of Egypt were evil and the people of Israel were good. And so, because of their goodness, God said, I'm going to spare you. It sounds like a good theory. Here's a problem. Two months after the Passover, what happens? Moses goes up on a holy mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, the people God spares, the people he passes over, have a pagan orgy at the foot of the mountain. So don't tell me they were spared because of their own righteousness or their goodness. What God said is in my love and in your faith and obedience and repentance and obedience to his painting this blood, I will pass over. And so we have this picture right here. And David, every year as he celebrates the Passover, is able to see a picture of God's wrath and God's love brought together. But it doesn't end at the Passover, does it? Who else celebrated the Passover every year of their life? Jesus, right? In fact, you look at the numbers, it says that from the time the Israelites entered the land until the time they left, it was 430 years. You go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and there's how many years until we see the birth of John the Baptist? 400 years. And approximately 30 years later, Jesus begins his ministry. And so this is a picture of of Jesus himself. Scripture is clear. First time we see Jesus, John the Baptist sees him coming, and what has he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus himself says this in John ten nine. Listen to this as you look at this. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out And find pasture. Because of the love of Jesus, the wrath of God passes over us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8 says, For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then finally, Romans 5, 7 through 9. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Make no mistake, we're saved from God himself by God's son himself. And so it's not by accident as we consider the Passover, on the night Jesus was betrayed, what meal is he celebrating? Passover. Passover. And the next day, he goes to the cross. And I loved what Gary said last week, that often we romanticize the cross. We have our clean and sterile versions. But Jesus painted the cross with his own blood. So that the wrath of God might pass over those who put their trust in him. And so again, in Jesus Christ, the Passover points to it. David prophesies about it. But in Jesus himself, we see the wrath of God and the love of God as equal truths. We see the duality of God in this beautiful way. So you, you think about a sermon like this. What's the application? What do we do? Well, there's two things I want to challenge us to do. The first, I would say, is that as we present the gospel, how accurate are we being? And some of you would say, well, we don't want to be too accurate because we might scare people off. We don't want to be too accurate because maybe it's too heavy for them. Here's what I want to tell you. God doesn't need a marketing director. The gospel is the gospel. Let me share this with you. This weekend... With the high school students, we talked about the explicit gospel. We talked about the wrath of God. We talked at a five-foot view about the crucifixion. We showed a clip from The Passion of the Christ. Did it scare them off? Ten students last night, when Larry gave an invitation, responded to the explicit gospel. The world needs the truth. If we go to our neighbors and friends and say it's all love and we don't talk about wrath, here's what's going to happen. The next step we're going to say is now I want to disciple you. So get a Bible and we give them a Bible and we tell them to read it. And because they're not stupid, they read it and they come to stories in the Old Testament about God's wrath. And hopefully they come back to and say, wait a minute, this loving God, how can this happen and how can he allow this? If we're not careful, we might say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Why don't you try the New Testament? hmm They get to Revelation. The kings cry out, may the mountains fall on us and kill us and crush us to spare us from the wrath of the what? The Lamb of God. Jesus himself. And so let me just say this simply. The truth is always the best answer. There's also a compellingness. If we consider the wrath of God, if we consider the seriousness of it, it will compel us to go to our neighbors. How many non-Christians, when they finally learn the gospel, they scratch their heads and say, why did my Christian friends not share this with me? Did they not care? But the other response I want us to have, and I've realized this just over this past week, kind of getting ready for this sermon, is that we worship God. I can't tell you in the past week, we've had times of worship. I mean, Larry Gallus was up there leading worship. We had beautiful worship this morning. If we consider the wrath of God and the love of God brought together in the person of Jesus, the only response is to fall to our knees and thank God for what he's done. And so I want us to do that together in communion. And I want to challenge us. I'm going to ask you as we take communion to think, about the death of Jesus Christ and what it accomplished. Now you might be saying, well, wait a minute, Will. That's a lot of talk on the wrath, talked about the crucifixion. You have not mentioned the resurrection yet. It's okay, I have permission. Jesus holds up a cup and a piece of bread, and what does he say? As often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you declare my death until I return. We know the resurrection. I'm not downplaying it. We're getting there. Easter's coming. We're going to talk about the resurrection, okay? So what I want us to do is to consider the death of Jesus Christ and what it accomplished in the extravagant love that was displayed. And I want us to rejoice in the fact that God was true to himself. He didn't let go of wrath to be loving. He didn't sacrifice justice To be merciful. And all of this was accomplished in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Around the tables, front and back, we have the communion elements. And so right now, if you'll get them, Joey's going to come play a song and we're going to sing at the end of it and take communion together. So you may pray or take communion right now. My favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Samuel fourteen fourteen. My, my wife and I were missionaries in Africa, and, and, and to be honest, I couldn't handle it. I quit. I couldn't take it. And I came home, and I was broken. And I'll be honest with you, I was expecting in my life some kind of wrath from God. And I remember I would open scripture and I would read it and in my broken state, every verse screamed out, you failed, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And so I remember, and I'm not recommending, I took my Bible and set it aside for over a year. Couldn't take it. And when I picked it up, I began to read. And I'll never forget coming across 2 Samuel 14, 14 in the Old Testament. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like waters spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. We're holding in our hands the way, the truth, and the life. Let's eat and drink together. Father in heaven, holy God, we praise you for who we, you are. We thank you, as odd as it sounds, for your nature. We thank you for your wrath and we thank you for your love. We thank you that in you they exist simultaneously. We thank you that you devised ways and way, the way to bring us back. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and we praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You may be dismissed. Just a reminder, in the back, we're going to have some pastors in the back, and if you have any questions or want to talk about something, they're back there. If this is your first time, uh, we'd love to meet you. Unfortunately, you don't get to meet Pastor Gary. It's just me today, but I'll be down here, and I can say hi as well. So, hey guys, have a great Sunday.